This is Daily Devotions Best Of with Pastor Tim Dodson from JF Believers Church. Subscribe to our podcast by visiting jfbelievers.com. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. With all of what was said in the first half of this chapter, Christ now gives both a warning and a clarification of just what faithfulness looks like. Certainly when something as dangerous to Satan's plans as a dynamic disciple who's entering the playing field, Satan will pull out all the stops. He quickly deploys everything he's got and everyone he's got. Beginning in verse 15, our text says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. With all of what has been said about wolves throughout Scripture, we know they're always there, waiting in the wings. They often look good, but in truth they are wolves in sheep's clothing most of the time. They can appear to be real believers, while at the same time conspiring against the immature, the unstable, and the gullible. Certainly, if the faithful individual can draw these wolves, a faithful fellowship will certainly bring them running. We can be certain that they are in our midst even at this moment. So how do we recognize them? Well, let's go on to verse 16 for the answer. Verse 16 reads, by their fruits you will know them. Do you gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? You see, the way to spot a wolf is to check his fruit. Fruit? Yes, that which comes forth from the living of each one of us is our fruit. It's a perfect test because it's not something that anyone can fake for very long. There are characteristics of a faithful disciple that are sure as grapes to the vine. The same is true of a wolf. If given time, we all manifest who and what we are. This is more than merely the issue of good works, but also a glory to God, a humility of spirit, a love manifested, a holiness manifested. Works are definitely a part of the fruit of our lives, but works can be generated at least for a time out of our own strength and efforts. These other traits are quickly lost to the deceiver. Verse 17, even so every good tree produces good fruit, but the corrupt tree produces evil fruit. A good tree can't produce evil fruit, Neither can a corrupt tree produce good fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit. Such is not a matter of effort or abilities, for the disciple will not be able to stop production of fruit in their lives. You see, it's more than inevitable. It's undeniable, unquestionable, and absolutely assured. As certainly as this good fruit is produced by the good tree, the corrupt tree will bring forth evil fruit, for it too can do nothing else. All of this is not so we might discern salvation, but
but it is given as evidence to discern faithful discipleship. Our own, firstly, and whether we are comfortable with this factor or not, we are given such also to discern the discipleship of others. How else can we know who to trust, to lead, to teach us? Such may not be politically acceptable, but it is a biblical mandate. Scripture gives us specific requirements for those in positions of authority, for that of a pastor, to elders, to husbands and fathers. The reality of such a calling will manifest itself in the fruit of our lives. Verse 19 says, Every tree that doesn't grow good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, never one to mince words. Jesus passes judgment on these that fail to produce the inevitable fruit of the disciple. <clears throat> what does it mean, cut down and thrown into the fire here? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I certainly don't like the sound of it. I know that from the rest of Scripture that our Lord is not suddenly damning the young believer or changing his grace-based plan into some sort of works-oriented salvation. Yet it is undeniable that this Scripture is emphatic as to the fate of those who fail to produce good fruit. So if we are indeed born again, our lives will show it. And just as assuredly, if we are not saved, our lives will also say so. No matter how much we pretend or attempt to work in our own strength, the end will surely come, and the end for these is destruction. Verse 20, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So with a clarifying period at the end of the sentence, Jesus reiterates his position. Not only will Jesus Christ know them, but he says you will know them. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 21 are words many of us would rather skip over. If they've made you feel uncomfortable, you'd better brace yourself. For if the issue of discipleship troubles you, perhaps you need personally to wrestle, firstly with the issue of salvation. Today our churches are full of religious folks that are lining comfortable pews and arresting in comfortable, satisfied lives of moral uprightness. But the question must be asked, and begs for an honest appraisal of our eternal state. Are we really born again? Verse 22. Many will tell me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, and in your name do mighty works? We must realize that often our criteria for being included in this Christian club is more than just lacking. Sometimes our criteria is just plainly wrong. We often look at certain manifested powers that we are part of and we automatically assume that such is proof and guarantee of our righteous standing in Christ. But it is a shaky ground for each of us as we need to know clearly that Satan also participates in the miraculous. There are no limits to the length to which he will go. No cost he is not willing to expend to take you out. Some may rise to their own defense, pointing out to those who question their status, saying, well, what about the verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? 
It's Acts 16.31. But the verse tells us, believe on the Lord, not believe in the Lord. There's a vast difference between the two. Jesus openly declares here that it will be he who will be the one we all stand before in Judgment Day. So have we placed our future, our passion, our will, and our very lives into and under his control? Because that is believing on. Many of us are quick to call him Lord without acknowledging the magnitude of such a title. Calling him Lord means that we are his servant to live according to his will and his abiding. It means he is the master and we live by his standards and his bidding and his agenda and his directives. Verse 23, then I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. Judgment, real judgment, is coming for each of us. It is a matter of stark reality, even in a world that either denies or alters such a fact. All the good works in the world will not earn you a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. A lifetime of church attendance will not get you into a heavenly home. And nothing else will matter at that point except this. Are you born again? It's not that righteous works or church attendance are somehow unimportant. It's just that these are an overflowing of a heart of love towards our Savior, not cosmic installments for our eternal soul. What shocking news to you if you have been given your life to good works and church attendance and moral living, only to finally stand before Christ and hear those words. If you are saved, he knows you, and you know him. Not know of him, but you are intimate friends, personal in relationship and loyal in unity. Would you die for this friend? Because that's what he's asking for. For you to die to your flesh and become a new person. To pick up your cross and follow him. After all, he died for you first. Verse 24. Everyone therefore who hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain came down, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it didn't fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now these two houses no doubt looked the same from the outside. Their appearance, though, was not the issue in the long run. What was under the house was what, what mattered. What its foundation was sitting upon was the issue. Many a beautiful house has been built that eventually slipped into the ocean and down embankments blown into pieces by tornadoes simply because they weren't built on a good foundation. They weren't built to last. It didn't matter at all that they looked good before they were smashed to bits. Verse 26 says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. Its fall was great 
A strong and lasting foundation takes time and it takes expense, and there's no doubt about it. Most of the time, no one can see the foundation of a house as it is hidden from the public eye. Therefore, it doesn't make the house intrinsically more pleasing to the eye, nor can you really tell by looking which house has a solid foundation. There is only one way to tell. The house built upon a rock foundation will stand the test when the storms of life begin to blow. The house built upon the sand will fall. The house built upon the rock will stand. Many people today claim to know Jesus. They go to church and they cry out, Lord, Lord. Their foundations are upon sand and they manifest such when the storms of life come. The winds blow and they fall. They often rebuild when the dust clears, only to do so quickly, giving all the attention again to cosmetics instead of structural integrity. And when the next storm of life blows through, they crash again. This world will always place more value upon looking like a Christian than being born again and actually walking as one. Sometimes we can convince even ourselves. Verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the multitudes were astonished at his teaching, for he taught with taught them with authority and not like the scribes. Astonished is a big word. Why were they astonished? Because they'd never heard anything or anyone like this before. The scribes, the teachers of the day, would teach, but they would never take responsibility for what was being said. They would quote others and they would read their textbooks. But Jesus stepped out of the pack and clearly marked himself as different. He spoke in absolutes and with personal accountability and responsibility. No one else would go on record as speaking such absolutes. If they failed in one point, they could be banished in disgrace. But Jesus, he never stumbled and he never failed. His words stood the test of time because, well, because they were the truth. John 8:46 says, since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? That was our daily devotions by Pastor Tim Dodson. For more information about Pastor Tim and JF Believers Church, visit jfbelievers.com.